when I was in sixth grade, my English teacher read us a story, like the whole class. And I remember thinking at the time, lady, I'm a little old for this. And probably that was about the last time, you know, in my schooling that that happened. But this particular story that she read was designed around teaching us the word paradox and what it meant. And it was a story about how this animal was half parrot and half ox and how strange that was that like two things could be happening at the same time. And I don't remember the story at all, but I do remember that word paradox. And I don't remember the story at all, but I do remember that word paradox and what it means. And for those of you who uh, don't use that word regularly, or if you're not a native English speaker, a paradox is something like um, a chicken and the egg situation where you got to have a chicken to get the egg, but you got to have an egg to get the chicken or maybe more relevant for a career, which is what I want to, where I'm heading with this. Um, you, you might be fresh out of school and applying for jobs and the job posting will say, must have three years experience. And you're like, I know that's, I need to get the experience. So I need the job, but you can't get the experience without the job, but you can't get the job without the experience. So it's kind of, that's a paradox. And there's kind of a spectrum here because, and I'm no expert on this. Someone's probably, you know, panicking that I'm already wrong about it, but irony is kind of in this spectrum where, you know, something could be ironic and that's not quite a paradox, but it doesn't matter. Now I, I mentioned this about paradox because I've been thinking about this recently in terms of career, um, in terms of what do I want to do? I want what I would like to do would be, you know, what many of you like to do, use tools and work with your hands and work outside and, you know, build things or whatnot. But the, the, the paradox or the ironic part is generally labor and working is kind of a, you don't make a ton of money. It's like lower paid and almost the more labor that's involved, the often the less pay there is. And that's tough because like I said, on Saturdays, I like to work. That's what I, that's what I like to do. And, uh, unfortunately, and for, I know for many of you, that type of stuff is then relegated to nights and weekends. And you spend your time during the week focused on the work that will, you know, make the most money for your family. This creates uncertainty in career because people can get deep into a career sometimes. And that pull of, you know, of what they want to be doing or, or not being satisfied with the work they are doing can create a, a feeling where you are kind of empty. And if not empty, uncertain and uncertain creates stress and anxiety and you don't know what the right move is for your career should you turn the page completely and start something completely different uh should you just get a different job but still not be satisfied because it's it's the same kind of work there's just so much uncertainty in in jobs and career and i guess the point i want to make is i think that that's very normal and you know like like with the grass being greener the way that story goes when the cows get to the other side of the fence, they realize the grass is the same. It just looked greener. At least that's the way I was told that little idiom. And I think there's truth to that in career and also where all everybody in every career is feels some amount of uncertainty about exactly what the right next move is and whether they should do this or that. And, and likely if they could, they would 
rather be doing something any different anyways, you know, even if that's just golf or fishing or something. So, um, I think the best career, uh, the best grass is greener career, uh, site that I ever beheld was a friend of mine who had this business. He, they, him and his wife owned these group homes and they made, they made really good money, um, providing homes for troubled teens. And my friend did the landscaping and the pool maintenance on all of these properties that they owned that were all full of, um, I think they were mostly young men, but I'm not sure about that. But at the time I remember thinking like, Hey, this guy cracked the code. He's making really good money and making a living, but he gets to mow and clean pools and trim trees and, you know, do the, the type of just uh, sprinkler repair, the things that I just like doing. Uh, he, he was doing that and making money. Now I'm sure if I talked to him now, he'd, he'd chuckle and, and educate me about how it, that it's not all it cracked up to be or what I, what I was seeing was not the reality. But I mentioned, I tell you this little story and anecdote, just for those of you who are uncertain about your careers and, and not sure what to do. And I want you to know, we all feel that way. And I do as well. I certainly feel, uh, like, I don't know exactly what I'll be doing in a few years. And I'm kind of always looking over my shoulders and side to side, wondering if I should be in a different lane. So don't sweat it. It's normal. And that's part of what makes life exciting is making decisions, seeing opportunities and, and making, and trying to be wise in making these important decisions. Next topic. This is going to be a real grab bag of a podcast, by the way. And at the end, we've got a brief interview uh, with um, Natalie, who's going to talk to us about worm castings. So we got a, sh- a serious junk drawer or potpourri type episode here. The next topic I want to just cover briefly because it's just on my mind is that this change of season right now, um, where I live in Oregon, it's just in the last couple of weeks really started to feel like summer's winding up and fall is beginning. And for me personally, this is unquestionably my absolute favorite time of year. Summer is really fun and there's, you know, vacations and you're swimming and playing and 4th of July and barbecues and all that. But I feel like in, and working a lot in the summer too, I should say. And in the fall, however, kind of, it feels like that's the time when everything gets back to work. Kids are back in school. Uh, I, th- that allows me to kind of get working a little more seriously. The In terms of gardening, which we'll be talking about later, that's when the most food is coming out of the garden. So it's kind of like all your work over the summer is paying off. Or I should say, in my case, all my parents' work is paying off because they have this massive garden. You might have seen the video on it recently. And there's so much food that comes out of it. And they just basically give like as much all you can eat, you know, to us and my family. And so we've been eating tomatoes. My wife's been making pesto out of the basil from the garden. And I think that's about tomato and pesto has been my lunch for like, I don't know, three weeks straight. And it's just really delicious. So uh, I, I love this time of year. And then of course, just the the weather starts to change and the leaves start crinkling up a little bit and a very fun time of year. Two more topics before we get to the interview with Natalie. Uh, last weekend, I went on a camping trip with my three oldest kids. And I've never done that before, just me and them. And I it was kind of for a specific reason. And you're I filmed it, so you'll probably see this. But up in the mountains, an hour and a half from where I am here, there's a 
a nonprofit group who is rebuilding a forest service shelter. And me and the kids went up there to film it a little bit and check it out. And I, we had so much fun. I'll never forget it. Mostly because my kids were just so cute and so happy to do this little camp out with daddy. For me, it was really neat because I got to see them putting this shelter together and you'll see in the video, but it's really beautiful and unique style of construction. It's like a timber frame style, but with big, um, rough sawn timbers that they've saw themselves on a sawmill. Very neat stuff. Um, and one of the guys who runs this nonprofit has a worm farm and he, he's the guy who gave my dad those worm castings for his garden that juiced up all of his tomatoes that caused everything to go nuts. I had never even heard that word worm casting before that video. And he got them from uh, this guy, Rusty. So I've got a guest now to talk about worm castings. This was all brand new to me. I'm 40 just learning this. So I'm assuming some of you haven't learned it yet either. I don't have a garden. I don't have worms. I don't think I will anytime soon, but it's always good to know something you didn't know. And after this conversation with Natalie, I appreciate worms and I appreciate gardening and this area, this real kind of niche area of, of composting um, much more. And if you live in a city or if you don't have a lot of space, if you live in a property where you have limited space, you're really going to want to listen to this because um, Natalie here, worm castings and what Natalie's doing with, with uh, vermiculture, I believe is the word, is great for people without a lot of space. You can create a lot of, uh, of, the, of this really great soil without taking a lot of space and really bring your garden to life. So without any further ado, here's Natalie from Hey, It's a Good Life. With composting, I always just figured any biomaterial will break down. So that's the first question. Can you get good compost just out of leaves and wood chips and those kind of things? Or do you have to be putting like food scraps and other items in as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it depends what kind of composting you're talking about being like a worm expert. Um, I like to think that almost anything is possible with worms. Um, you know, what you put in is what you're going to get out in a more bioavailable form. As far as wood chips go, um, so I'll just speak to the vermicompost. As far as wood chips go, that's going to be something that takes a long time to break down. And it's not something that, um, worms really enjoy. But leaves, leaves, on the other hand, is a phenomenal source of carbon for worms. In fact, I encourage all of my people to always have a carbon source on hand, whether that's shredded paper or leaves. Um, I'm all about ecosystems and doing things as naturally as possible. So I'm like, store your leaves up come fall. So to anybody listening right now, like it's almost fall, store those leaves as they're falling because it's going to be your compost's best friend. And you know, there are people who really just compost with what's called leaf mold. But um, when we add that to the vermicompost, it's going to balance out any nitrogen that we add and um, really just fuel this process of enzymes breaking down the greens or the nitrogen and, and fungus and all of these wonderful bacteria. And they have this like symbiotic relationship. Um, so to answer your question, you can add just about anything to any kind of compost, but certain types of compost systems like things better. I definitely recommend sticking with kitchen scraps or healthy leaf cuttings from your garden and leaves for your vermicompost. 
So does vermicompost refer to the fact that it has worms in it? Can you define that term for the rest of us who aren't up to speed? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's worm castings and there's vermicompost. So for example, for those watching, we have right here what's called a vermicompost. So this is the worms. This is broken down, not totally finished compost. You know, we still have some leaves in here and stuff. That is vermicompost. But when we screen this and we start to separate these larger unprocessed chunks and take out the worms and take out their eggs, eventually you can screen it so fine that you just get the worm castings. And I saw on your questions, you're like, well, what is a worm casting? A worm casting yeah. is just a fancy name for essentially worm poop. And oh. so when you send it through the sieve long enough, you can get a fine enough um mesh where you're just capturing the worm poop or the worm casting. So vermicompost is everything that's in your worm farm. Worm castings are the worm poop. And the way you separate that um, is essentially through a series of screens. So is the are the worm castings falling through the screen because they're so small or are they like bigger that get stuck up on the top? That's a great question. Yeah, exactly. So because, you know, um, Commercial worm farmers have these really cool tools called trommels, and I want to build a DIY one for our backyard. Uh, but essentially, it's like a half-inch screen. It's like a big funnel. So you have like a half-inch screen, a quarter-inch screen, an eighth-inch screen, and I think some even go finer than that. But yeah. once you're you're down to like the eighth inch, so through the half inch, all the worms kind of come through. Okay. So then you collect the worms underneath in this tub. And then from the quarter inch screen, you're starting to just get anything else out. Um, and then by the eighth inch screen, now you're holding back the worm castings. Um, mm. So I hope I said that correctly. Anyway, at each phase, you're kind of sifting out larger particles until you have just what you want at the end. Wow. And are the castings the most uh, uh, healthy for plants and gardens? That's like the premium product to put into your garden or I'm sure totally. it's all good, but is that that's like really like the the magic secret ingredient? Yeah, and I should say on the note of screening things out too before I forget, there's a lot of different ways to worm farm, and one that we're looking at right now is called flow through systems, which means instead of dumping a harvest out into some kind of sifting mechanism, you're going to be scraping that harvest from the bottom, and that's almost a more sure guarantee that you're getting mostly castings. Uh, so that's a more efficient way to worm farm. I should just throw oh. that in there. Um, but on the note of what's the healthiest compost for the garden, hands down vermicompost is. Oh. Um, it's really amazing because you can't add too much. It's really balanced. It's one of the highest um, concentrations of humic and fulvic acids that you can find on planet earth. And so if oh. you know anything about humic or fulvic acids, you know, humans are actually starting to take those as supplements to help remove toxins and heavy metals from their bodies. The same can be true for our soils. So it's funny. I released this uh, course called the Wor the gardener's guide to worm farming. And that week that we launched the course, I'm over here thinking, wow, how much niche can I get? I'm really passionate about this. I want to serve people, but mm -hmm. like, Lord, you know, <laughs> what's going on here. And that week, the headline said fertilizer shortages, uh, food shortages on the horizon. And, and through mm -hmm. my newsfeed, we were getting pictures of these dumped over trains where like actual amendments had just completely dumped out onto the side of the railroad. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of like, for such a time as this, like anybody can use this system anywhere to make compost. And that's 
that's why I got started was because I had a very small space. I didn't have space for traditional compost. I finally found worm farming and I started cranking out this compost and I was like, why isn't everybody doing this? And then I saw what it could do for my garden. And I was like, this honestly is the best. I see why it's the most expensive kind of compost at the store. Um, So to answer that question, kind of long winded, it really is the best. And I think it's amazing because anybody can do it anywhere. So in a small space, you're kind of generating your own compost and the premium compost, which you're putting on, I, I'm, if you have a small space, you probably have like a small type of garden. So you're getting the most bang for your buck out of every square foot of space. Is that kind of the, the strategy? Totally. Um, we actually crank out 2000 pounds of compost every year in six square feet of space. So yeah, it's quite a bit. Um, and it goes so far. So it completely transforms your soil. Like we're in my garden, which is kind of hard to see now, but it's about, uh, 600 square feet, something like that. We have um, five main beds and then a pollinator patch and then a a little green stock garden tower here as well. And, um, you know, we're making our compost completely on our own. I used to spend anywhere between 500 to a thousand dollars on bags of compost that I'd have to go to the store and then put in my car and then lug to the backyard. And now I just make it right here and we're just cranking it out. So I've completely decreased that cost. And we're about to have like a surplus that we're going to be able to sell worms and sell castings uh, here really soon. So it's one of those things like sourdough starter or kombucha where it's like you just start and then you dedicate a little bit more space and it will just um, really expand. When you need worms, like let's say you're expanding and you're going to go from, let's say you're going to triple and you're going to go all the way to 18 square feet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty small still. Um, Are you going to take like your own worms and just take like a, and just move them like that? Like you said, like sourdough or is there, you going to like, do you ever need to buy worms again? Or you kind of are generating so many baby worms that you got them coming out of your ears? You, you nailed it. Yeah. It's just like sourdough starter or kombucha. It's like, once you start it once you just nourish that and you have your own supply for life. Um, you know, the, the benefit to playing around with different types of worms from other parts of the country is like, there's a lot of different worms. In fact, some say there's over 10,000 species of uh, earthworm on earth, but there's only maybe seven or nine that are actually composting worms. And then within those um, categories, there are some that fare better in cooler climates and then some that fare better in hotter climates. Uh, For example, like the Canadian nightcrawler does better in potentially cooler climates, whereas like an Indian blue might do better in a tropical climate. And so I think there is a benefit to sourcing from other places, whether you buy them or somehow do an exchange where you get those worms. You can get a lot of worms for free in like Facebook marketplace groups, um, yeah. offer up nextdoor.com. Um, yeah. you don't always know what you're getting, but, um, but yeah. And then of course you can always buy them and, and that can be a benefit to that. But yeah, to your point of like, once you have worms, do you need to buy them again? Not really. <laughs> Is there any reason to try different species? Do it, do the, does it make any type of difference that you can measure in the castings or the fertilizer or anything? Like, are you ever curious about some really exotic worm and what it might do? Yeah, that's a great question. So Isenia fetida is the scientific name for red wiggler. Sorry, I'll say that again. Isenia fetida is the scientific name for red wiggler. Okay. And that's known as like the most hardy worm. They do best in the widest range of temperatures, the most confined spaces, and Uh they eat the most food and reproduce the quickest. So a lot of people see them as a very valuable worm. Uh, But there are other worms out there. 
Um, and some of the benefits of potentially even mixing worms, like having red wigglers with Indian blues is they have just like a slightly different lifestyle. So like the red wigglers are super surface dwellers, whereas like these night crawlers go a little bit deeper. And so, um, you know, to your point of what is the output look like, I think that would probably be pretty hard to measure unless you had like strictly like, these are my night crawlers. These are my red wigglers. Um, And I really haven't looked at that research. I know as far as red wigglers are concerned, their actual intestinal flora contributes to the microbes that end up in the castings. And so whatever's going on on their insides ends up being really good for the garden. Yeah. But I imagine that most composting worms have good yeah. good gut flora. <laughs> I'm sure it's like like bees where the bee experts could tell you which species makes the tastiest honey, but for the normal person it's really splitting hairs and my mom's really into bees and she'll tell you like you know when they've been eating on blackberry blossoms or whatever she's like she can tell it in the in the honey and I'm like if you say so but yeah. <laughs> to me, it's a kind of like a commodity, honey. Yes. So I, worm castings would be that in spades, considering they are literally a um, poop and yeah. a compost that the idea is just to make bigger tomatoes, not, yeah. to, not to lose sleep about how tasty or good the um, <laughs> castings yeah. are. You know, on that note, though, of bigger tomatoes, the really cool thing about worm castings is they actually do increase your yield. So when people are like, oh, well, how do I get you know better tasting fruit? How do I get more of it? I'm like, you need worm castings and then you need to turn those worm castings into worm tea, which is a foliar spray. And when you do that, it actually has these things called phenyl compounds and those smell bad to pests. So a lot of pests are not going to be interested in your plants. And Mm. then it's kind of like you're in, you're, you're spraying on nutrients directly at the cell level. And Mm. so the plants are going to be happier. So they've got this like nice protective flora on them. So the pests aren't interested. Now you're Mm. boosting their resilience to disease. And then on top of that, they're going to give you more blossoms because they're so happy and so, you know, nutrient dense. Um, And then you're going to get more fruit that tastes better because, well, if you're putting it in the soil, now you're removing any toxins and any heavy metals. So that's, I think there's such a case to be made for like the foodie gardener, the person who's really gardening for flavor of like, you really need a worm farm. Yeah. Well, every garden should have worms in it, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm not a gardener. Correct me if I'm making some bad assumption here, but healthy soil, like in any given garden, if you dig in, there should be some worms in it making castings, I presume. But the idea is like any fertilizer adding that much more of the castings and such can only help since the plants are sucking it out. Is that right? In other words, if someone has a garden and they're like, there's a lot of worms in my garden anyways, why should I start a whole worm operation when this is great soil? It's packed full of worms. Is that, Got it. is there a yeah. reason why they should do it anyways? Like what's the case for worm farming when I already have worms in the soil? Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That is a great question. That's one that I get a lot because there are people who have amazing worms in their soil and, and that's wonderful. Um, but to me, as somebody who's kind of obsessed with worm tea, uh, I talk about it a lot. I really believe that worm tea is the future of regenerative agriculture. Um, and I help a lot of people heal their, their lands with it. Uh, as somebody who's interested in worm tea, you can't really just pick the worm castings out of the soil. And so when you're looking to turn those castings into something way more in the form of a, a foliar feed like worm tea, it's a thousand times easier. I wouldn't even say it's possible if you're pulling soil out where there's worms. Um, I wouldn't say it's even possible to, to make worm tea. So I think if you're interested in um, really just the process of worm farming, um, 
it's worth it to have a worm farm. It's an interesting way to be more sustainable, to see the whole breakdown of your food scraps. It's something that's so fun for homeschool families. And that's really who we serve these days is homeschool families and and making uh, resources for them. It's such like a fun uh, sensory bin for kids. I mean, the list goes on and on. Like um, my daughter is 19 months old and every day she wants to go see the worms. And it's like (laughs) one of her favorite activities. And it's just so cool because she's in it. They're wiggling. There's roly polies. There's some crunchy, there's some squishy, there's some soft. And so, um, there's just, there's so much that it offers a family from sustainability to capturing kids' interests to having a pet that never needs a walk. (laughs) Um, there's so many reasons to start a worm. Do they like require, and obviously they're eating. Is it possible? Like your worms are in these bins where they can't escape. If you left them for like a year, would they all die? Cause there's nothing left to eat. Are you feeding them regularly, like on a schedule in order to keep them healthy? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's bust a myth really fast that worms eat food scraps. That's actually a myth. Worms eat microorganisms. And so what is happening when you're adding your food scraps to a worm farm is you're essentially throwing catalysts in there in the form of fungal enzymes. Um, And so these enzymes start secreting the stuff to break down the food. And once they do that, the worms come alongside and they eat up these microorganisms. Now, a worm farm is very rich in microorganisms. So can you neglect it and not feed it? Technically, yes, if there's enough microorganisms and if the moisture is right. So we have like a 70-70 rule around here, 70% moisture, 70 degrees. So theoretically, like it could go a long time if you if you had ideal conditions at 70 and 70. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't need to necessarily always be adding inputs. So yeah, that's a great question. Like people ask me a lot, like I'm going on vacation. Um, is it going to be okay if I don't feed my worms? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Now on yeah. the other hand, it can be really helpful to have a feeding schedule simply because for your own sanity, you don't want like your little compost caddy developing flies in the kitchen and mm-hmm. like knowing like, okay, we feed the worms on Sundays or we feed the worms on Fridays. It's just kind of like a nice rhythm to have as a yeah. family who's interested in sustainability. Um, so here's a question and maybe we'll kind of wrap on this, but tell me what you would do if you were me. And I'm lucky because I have a little more space. I've got a couple acres and last week this, uh, company, the tree trimming company came and trimmed a bunch of trees along the power lines in front of my house. And on the back, it said, if you want chips, you know, it said free chips or something like that. And I was like, Hey, great. I'll take a couple loads. So they dumped this mountain of chips in my field. And at the time, and my, I talked to my dad, he's done this before. And he's like, oh yeah, it breaks down and it turns into compost for garden. And I don't have a garden, but we have, we had, we do have a lot of plants and I'm always buying fertilizer. And, and so I was thinking, well, it would be nice if that pile of chips and leaves, you know, broke down into like really great soil. Um, but how do I get the worms up in it? Yours are in bins, so they can't escape. These ones would be able to escape. What would you do if you were me to turn that like mountain of leaf and little bits of wood chips? I've got several years and I got a, you know, tractor to like stir it up, but what would be the process to start the clock ticking on turning that into some really organic and, you know, powerful vermicule or cultural, whatever you called it? (laughs) Yeah. Vermiculture. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Um, Okay. So you said a couple things that I think are really interesting. Uh, First off, that pile of wood can never turn into soil, um, oh. but it can turn into an amendment. 
um, it can give back to your soil. The reason it can never be soil is because soil uh, is, it's like a triangle. So it's three, it's three parts, sand, silt, and clay. And in the middle, we have what's called loamy soil, which is um, sand, silt, and clay with organic matter. And that's really the ideal that we're going for. So if you're looking to build soil, I wouldn't be putting all of my chips on that uh, thing of wood chips in the back of your farm. Um, But, you know, uh, also to the note of like, how do you turn a wood chip pile into a vermiculture system? I think that would be kind of challenging simply because worms like bedding and Mm. uh, wood chips don't make great bedding. But what I would do if I were you is I would use all of those wood chips and I would line all of the paths of my garden. Mm. And what you'll notice over time is there's going to be this exchange between the rainwater, the soil that's there already, and the wood chips. And eventually those wood chips will break down and eventually they will offer the the surrounding garden beds a lot. Um, plus, I think walking on wood chips is just like such a nice feeling. So yeah. if it were me, I would line my gardens with them. They're not an immediate input. In fact, that's actually how I killed my first garden <laughs> and how I got into worm wow. farming in the first place was I tried this whole back to Eden thing and I was like, I'm going to put wood chips over my brand new soil. And what ended up happening is because the wood chips are fresh, they ended up soaking up all of the nutrients. And oh. I ended up throwing those wood chips away, not knowing like they stole all the nutrients. If I had just waited, they would have returned the nutrients back. Back. Um, so fresh wood chips can be kind of tricky. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, that's yeah. really helpful. I, I, you, it didn't click, but you're right. Wood chips and leaf matter is not dirt <laughs> right. and, and worms live in dirt. So maybe someday in like 10 years, yeah. it'll be to that point. Um, okay. Yeah. That what? gets, that gets me started though. A way to think about it. Definitely. Um, last myth maybe to bust. You know, when I was a kid, they told me after it rains, the worms are all like stretched out on the road and they're pretty <laughs> gross looking. Are they? Is that because they do drown? Like they they can't handle the water? What what is going on when that happens? And is there? <laughs> are you running around like scooping them up like free worm day or what? Should I do that? Should I be like collecting them and putting them in, you know next to plants or what's the what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really good kind of combo question. So first, what's happening? Um, there's a lot of different theories about why that happens. Um, you'll know if, you, if you've ever fished in your life, if you know people who fish, uh, it's a common thing to kind of take um, like a steel, you know, some kind of metal post and drag it through the earth to raise the worms up so you have bait for fishing. Uh-huh. Um, so there's this theory that between like that practice and what we notice with rain that there's, it has something to do with vibration. And so that's my take on it. At least there's a lot of people who are still subscribed to this whole drowning thing, which could be part of it. Like maybe the rain, you know, the vibration signal, Hey, danger, we could drown. And that's why they come up. Who knows? But I subscribe to the, like, Oh, the worms are sensitive to vibrations. And so they raise to the surface because they know something's happening. Um, But the fact that we see that happen outside of just rain makes me think it's a vibration and not just a liquid that is scaring the worms. Um, And then to your question of, should I be scooping these worms up? I get that question a lot of like, hey, I have worms in my backyard. Can I just throw them in a bin? And kind of like we talked about earlier, there's lots of different worms out there. There's no guarantee that those worms that you're scooping up are composting worms. So 
there's three major uh, types of worms, anisic, epigeic, and endogeic. And you want to make sure that you're getting the composting worms. And two out of the three of those categories, these worms have totally different life cycles. They're going to do horizontal burrows or vertical burrows or Uh vertical burrows and horizontal burrows. They like hibernate. Um, Composting worms are the only kind of worms that are really surface dwelling worms that are there to churn out compost that are really interested in, in leaf litter and things like that. So, um, you don't know what kind of worm you're getting, like when you pick it up off the road like that, but you know, if you want to give it a go, like by (laughs) all means go for it and see how it turns out. It could be a fun uh, science experiment. It could be like planting a whole beautiful garden full of weeds and it's kind of like, cool. (laughs) Anyway, they're not going to do anything for you. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is so cool. Natalie, thank you so much. And I'm going to link to your Instagram, but you're also on YouTube and you have a course about worms. Can you give us the rundown of uh, where all your um, content can be found and what your putting out there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Of course, I love to talk about worms and uh, it's been such an honor to be here. Really appreciate the content that you guys put out there. Um, If you are interested in our content, we're on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and um, our course. We we just came out with a worm farming course called the Gardener's Guide to Worm Farming, and it's really serving the homeschool family. Uh, We have an 80-page workbook that goes with it, and our homeschool families love it because it's a way for mom and dad to learn how to make all the compost they could ever need for the homestead, and the kids are learning as well. Um, Another thing, too, about that is every kid can learn together, which has been um, huge for our homeschool families who are like, well, is this going to work for my two-year-old and my 16-year-old? And the answer is yes, which is which is really cool. So we've had a lot of fun um, getting that to our people and and enjoying all those positive reviews. So if you want to check that out, you can find that on our website, heyitsagoodlife.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with the worms. And uh, I thank may you. circle back in a year or two and, and show you what I've done with it. But I, uh, I have a feeling we got worms in the future. So Thanks a Absolutely. Lot. That makes me so excited. If you ever need worms, you know who to call. We'll get them to you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you.